Um, We've been walking through the book of Philippians, and we've been in a sermon series that I believe Eric feels the need to defend every time he names it. It is called Give Him Heaven, which is a fine fine, uh, sermon series title. But the idea is that this book um, of Philippians encourages us, calls us to be citizens of heaven, not citizens of this earth, and so that as we are uh, in our everyday walking around shoes, that uh, heaven would be uh, seeping out of us in some way. Um, The blessings of heaven would come uh, here through us. So we've been walking through Philippians. Philippians is a book, um, it's essentially a missionary support letter in many ways. It's a thank you letter that Paul is writing to the Philippian church, a church that he helped to plant um, years previous. And, and at this point in his writing, he is in prison, probably in Rome. And, uh, and he's telling them, uh, thank you for your support. They sent uh, one of their own named Epaphroditus. And, and Paul received his, uh, the gifts that he had to bear, and he sent them back. And so if you remember, uh, Paul has basically been saying, I'm in, I'm in prison, but the cause of Christ can't be stopped even by that. Uh, he goes on to encourage the Philippians to stay faithful to Jesus Christ and all their sufferings to be unified because uh, for their sake, Christ has counted him, uh, himself as nothings for their benefit. He laid aside the benefits of Godhood so that he could... Um, He could become obedient even to death on a cross. Paul goes on to say, so continue, don't think too much of yourselves. Don't grumble and complain. That way you can can shine as stars in a crooked and depraved generation. And finally, he says, he commends uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus back to the Philippians. He's sending them back. And he says, "There there are not many like this who consider not only their own, not their own desires, but they consider uh, the sake of Christ in all that they do. And so that's where we've been in the letter. And at this point, Paul makes um, a turn. It's not a, it's not a change in content. It's just a new, new section. He says in the, in the NIV, it says further, my brothers and sisters. In the ESV, it says finally, my brothers and sisters. He's making a, a transition here. And what he's doing right at this point is repeating something that he's clearly told to the Philippians over and over again. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Um, then he says, it's no, it's no uh, cost to me to repeat myself, and it's a safeguard for you. And then he, um, he goes on to give what, what is probably the meat and potatoes of Paul's message and Paul's good news about Jesus Christ to these Philippians. And so... By rights, this passage deserves an entire series on its own, but we're going to cover it in one Sunday. And so uh, we're going to have to skip over some of your favorite parts, unfortunately. Somebody's going to say, why didn't you say that? There's so much. It's, it's an awesome passage, and I wish I had multiple weeks. So what we're going to talk about here is um, the dispute, the danger, and the solution of inactivity. The dispute, the danger, and the solution of inactivity. Uh, Paul, in this, in this section, is acting like a good friend, steering someone away from dabbling in meth. Like if you were walking down in like a seedier part of town, and some really slick dude and, and well-dressed came up to you and said, hey, I know you've heard of it, you've probably seen Breaking Bad, it's pretty awesome, let's try some meth, you would like this stuff. 
And you're like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. I mean, you look like you're pretty cool. I've heard that's pretty awesome. But then your friend with you taps you on the shoulder and says, wait, look down the alley at the person who's sitting there alone, disheveled, like ugly, and you don't want to go down this road. Don't like look past the shiny and, 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 the, and look to the reality. And then remember, he's, he's going to continue, your friend. He's very kind. Remember your family. Remember that you have a home. Remember you have a place where you belong, that you don't need fake good feelings because your God has taken care of you in many tangible ways and, um, and, and other ways besides. So Paul in this, in this section is acting like a good friend steering the Philippians away from death, away from danger, and back towards life. So, the dispute, the danger, and the solution of inactivity. The, the dispute, or the disagreement. Paul holds, uh, he doesn't kind of hold back at all in this section. Um, he says to the Philippians, look out for the dogs, look out for those, mutilator, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And he goes on to say, for we are the, are the true circumcision. Now, so Paul is talking in this section, what's happening is pretty clear in, Philippian, in, in the colony of Philippi and in the church there, that there have been um, some false teachers infiltrating the ranks. These were probably... Um, folks who are who are Jewish and then converted to Christianity, and uh, and what they were saying essentially was, you can be you can take on this new Jesus thing, but you gotta you gotta keep all of the old Jewish stuff too. You can't discard that. And if you're new, like most of the folks at the Church of Philippi would have been converts from uh, from paganism, essentially from from a Roman. Um, religion. They said, if you come to Jesus, you've also got to come to this Jewish stuff as well. And circumcision, Paul points that out because circumcision is shorthand at this time. Circumcision is, the circumcision is what Jewish people would refer to themselves as. We are the circumcision, which was shorthand for, we are the special selected people of God who follow all of the commands of God. Who, who do our duty by obeying him, who stay in right relationship through obedience to the whole law. Okay, so that's what's happening in, in Philippi right now. And Paul um, is confronting that in no uncertain terms. He's confronting it in no uncertain terms. So is it wrong? What is Paul actually confronting here? Is he saying, don't circumcise anymore? He doesn't actually say that. You see, that's a lot like, um, it's a lot like getting a tattoo, this circumcision. The why is what really matters. Is it okay to put ink into your skin as a design? Yes, that's, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You can do that in a way where you, uh, you put an indelible mark on your body that reminds you of part of your story, of, of some way that God has been faithful to you. Um, you can put, and it can be a, a, a conversation starter where you get to give testimony then to God's good and faithful work in your life because of this ink that you've injected into your skin in a certain design. It can be good. It can be connecting. Or you can get a tattoo at somebody. See, I'm free now. I don't have to live under your roof, mom and dad. I'm going to put this design on my body, even though you hate it, because I want to. It can be a declaration of your autonomy, a declaration of your freedom. 
and something and and it can and therefore cause dissension and dis, and and, and uh, fractioning of a relationship. So getting a tattoo is it's it's nothing, but why you do it is everything. Why you're going to do it is everything. So it's the same way with circumcision um, that Paul is referring to here. Paul calls them mutilators of the flesh, which is a graphic term. I'm going I'm to confess. Um, these people are insisting, again, they're insisting that you can, you can receive salvation from Jesus if you will also obey the law. Now that would be similar to if I stood up here and said, you can call yourself one of God's children. You can, be, uh, you can declare yourself free in him and fully cared for and, and safe in this world because of his care if, if you get yourself here every single Sunday and you're with God's people and doing the thing that we call corporate worship. Do you know what Paul would say to that? He'd say, you're a tyrant of time. You can't put that on God's people. That is because that is Jesus plus a law of some sort. I just wanted to put it in our context for a second. This is a big deal that they're talking about. There is no law over those who belong to Jesus. Now here's what's at stake. Here's the crux of, of the disagreement, the dispute. Who builds my resume? Who builds my resume? If a resume is a list of accomplishments that builds a reputation and ensures a future, who builds it? Do I build it? Is it based on me and my gifts and abilities and efforts, or is it based on Jesus and his accomplishments? That is the crux of it for Paul. If you add circumcision, if you add law obeying, going to church, or, you know, or circumcision, if that's your thing, um, or whatever it is, if you want to add that on top, then you are all of a sudden switching the locus of confidence onto yourself and away from Jesus. But is that really a danger? Is there really anything bad about that? These people are good Jewish people doing good Jewish things, being honest in their business practices, uh, being good parents, being good citizens. Why is Paul so uh, wound up about this? Why is it such a big deal? Well, Doc Cochran has a line in the show Deadwood, season one, episode two. Don't watch it. I'm not, uh, I'm not telling you to watch this show. But he said a line that I thought was really insightful. He says, I've seen, uh, seen as much misery out of them moving to justify themselves as them that set out to do harm. I've seen as much miser- misery created out of those that set out to, to claim and build their own righteousness, their own okayness, as I've seen out of those people who set out to do harm in the first place. He agrees with the Apostle Paul. Doc Cochran does. 
Paul is talking again about moral law-abiding Jewish citizens. But he goes so far as to call them dogs and evildoers. A dog um, is, this is really cool, and this is one of those things, you, somebody's going to say, you should have gotten into this, and I can't. But he, Paul says, their dogs are evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh, but we are the circumcision. We are, um, I'm going to read it so I don't mess it up. We are, the, we are the circumcision who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus. He's flipping the tables. Dogs was the, was the term. It's not like we use it. Like if we were saying you're a dog, we'd say you're just a, you know, a no person, nobody. Dog then was, was what Jewish people called the Gentiles, those outside the covenant, those who were unclean and could not worship the living God in the way that he commanded. So Paul is flipping the tables. And he's saying, you're mutilators of the flesh, but we're the real circumcision. Because remember, circumcision is shorthand for the people marked and, and, and saved by God. Paul is saying, we are the truth. You are now the lie because you're building on the law. So he calls them evildoers. He calls them evildoers. Paul is concerned again about the source. It's not that they practice circumcision it's the source again. I was talking to two of our members this week um, about sources. Uh, many of you guys know um, uh, Ron and Terry Jones who live on Vulcan Road. They've just got a property out there that they're starting to develop. And they're, build, they're putting in um, a lake. They're going to dig out some stuff. I don't know the whole process. But they're gonna, it's a man-made lake that they're going to create. And they have three springs on the property. And so Ron was describing to me what they're going to do. And they're going to divert two of the springs into the lake to feed it and fill it up and make it a you know, clean, beautiful lake. And I said, well, why not the third one, Ron? What's wrong with that one? Well, he said, that one would contaminate the whole lake because that third spring, somewhere at its source, has been uh, polluted by somebody up the hill from us. Uh, their, their sewage is somehow getting into that spring. And so at the source, there's something wrong and that would actually destroy our whole lake. Have any of you guys been to Hidden Hollow? Any of you kiddos? Yeah? Nice. It's awesome, right? Does anybody notice, this is for the kids, does anybody notice anything peculiar about that lake that they have there? Anything that's a little different? When you stand back and just look at it, picture yourself on the dock looking at that big lake. Do you notice anything different? You can shout it out. Not that it's deep. Not what's growing in it. Color. Anybody? Has anybody noticed this? It's a really interesting shade of green. The lake is there at Hidden Hollow. I'm not the first to notice it because Miss Sally affirmed that I was right. I asked Miss Sally about it. Sally and Dave Warland own that property. <clears throat> and she said that that lake is fed by two different streams that come out of the hills. And uh, they're underground springs. And at the source, there is a, uh, some kind of mineral, some kind of copper-related mineral that, that colors that water and makes it green, kind of like the Statue of Liberty turned green over time um, when copper reacted with water. So, so that, that lake is changed. It's different because of the source. So Paul is addressing an issue of source here. Because these Judaizers 
are saying, my path to the good life, my path to security and righteousness must go through my sweat-soaked successes. And when your stream runs through your sweat, it contaminates the whole river. But is it really evil? Back to that question. But is it really evil? There's a movie that came out last year. Um, it won uh, Best Supporting Actor. The actor I can't remember that actor's name. But, um, but it's called Whiplash. And it's, uh, yeah, it's good, wasn't it? Um, Miles Taylor, who's done nothing but teeny bopper films up to this point. It's cool. He did really well in this one. Plays Andrew, this young man who has um, a dream, an aspiration of becoming the premier jazz drummer of his generation. And he goes to an elite um, music school in Manhattan. And he arrives first time. He's all doughy-eyed. Like he just, oh, he's kind of, his head is spinning. He doesn't know which end is up. And, um, and, and he's just kind of trying to figure his way out. But as the story progresses, his dream becomes more and more He can see it coming closer and closer, and you watch his character progress. As he reaches for that dream, other people fall to the side. There's a great scene where he's at a dinner conversation with his aunt and his uncle and his father, and his two cousins are there, and they're all talking. They say, well, Andrew, how is school going? He says, well, I've actually made it into the premier band at this, the, the, the group at this school, and it's pretty much a fast track to, to success in my entire dreams. It's the most elite thing possible at my age and, and my place in my career, and I made it. And they're like, well, that's great. Did you hear about our son? He's the quarterback on the Division Three football team in town here. And they just they brush over it totally, and he can't take it because this is his thing. This is who he is. He is building his resume, and they've just ignored it. And as the conversation progresses, he becomes more and more um, you know, just like pointed and digging. And finally he says, it's just Division Three. You know, he just calls out his cousin and, sm- and, and just smears his, uh, his accomplishments and his, what he's doing and just says it's ridiculous. Not too long after that, he has a sit-down with his girlfriend. He sits her down in the diner. And he looks at her and he says, listen, I like you and all, but we got to break up. She doesn't understand it at all. He says, one day, one day soon, you're going to say that you need more of me. You're going to call me and say you're ready for me to come be with you. You're going to call me and say I need to spend more time with you and less time practicing. I can't do that. I can't do it. This is my dream. This is what I want, and this is what I'm going for. So he has to break this poor girl's heart. And finally, he, talks, he begins, at the beginning of the film, he's the one being talked down to by the other uh, musicians at a higher level. By the end of the film, he's the one belittling the lesser musicians, the second-seat drummer. He says, turn my pages. You're not worth sitting in this seat. He, he, starts, to, he starts to squash other people and, uh, in order to stand on top of them for the sake of his dream, for the sake of building his purpose in life. Is drumming bad? Is being a jazz drummer bad? No. But when it's your job to build your whole reputation and being onto it, you'll do anything to to get there. Yes, it becomes evil, as Paul says. That, I think, is why some of the most ruthless, devious, 
dishonest and defensive people you know are religious people. There may be or may not be one standing on the stage right now. It's because religious people, religion is based on me proving that I'm right. If I'm right, then God accepts me. If I obey, then I get the blessings. That's what religious people do. And so, it, so when we're proved wrong, we can't admit it. We have to defend ourselves. We become secretive and, uh, and we become hypocrites because we are building our own reputation. There's a, uh, a great character um, in a short story by Flannery O'Connor called, uh, the, the story is called Good Country People and the character is Mrs. Freeman. And she says this about Mrs. Freeman, that she had three faces toward the world, neutral, forward, and reverse. Forward, she says, was like the advance of a heavy truck. Her eyes never swerved to the left or the right. She seldom used the other expression, retreat, because it was not often necessary for her to retract a statement. But when she did use retreat, her face came to a complete stop. Her eyes seemed to be receding. And then the observer would see Mrs. Freeman, though she might stand there as real as several grain sacks thrown on top of one another. She was no longer there in spirit. Mrs. Freeman could never be brought to admit herself wrong on any point. And if she could be brought to say anything, it was something like, well, I wouldn't have said it was, and I wouldn't have said it wasn't. Mrs. Freeman is not a delightful human being. Mrs. Freeman cannot admit when she's wrong. So building our own reputation, what Paul's going after here, building our own confidence, our own security, it does indeed lead to evil. But you know what? You can't, if you can't build your confidence, if you can't do something worthwhile and build your confidence and make yourself unshakably secure in this world, maybe your confidence needs to be given to you. And that's actually what the self-esteem movement has right. The self-esteem movement in schools and parenting that says, you know what, a child should not have to prove that they're valuable to you. A child should be infused with that, should be given that confidence, should be told that they matter from right, from right away. They should have a voice in your family. You should listen to them and, and value what they say. And you should build them up with positive things. They're right. Confidence, you know, the, the saying is the, the ones that you hold closest will one day adventure the farthest or something like that. Is that how it goes? The ones you hold the closest, your babies, will, those ones who are secure and confident will one day be the ones who are confident enough to go out into the world and try new things and risk. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Confidence is not a thing that can be earned without destroying others. Confidence is a thing. Security, mattering, is a thing that has to be given. But what happens when that, when that child has built their whole world on your words, on the words of their teachers, on the words of other adults. Well, what happens is the first time that that child sees one of those adults fail, one of those adults do something petty or dishonest or selfish, it crumbles. 
Their confidence is built on human words, and human words can't uphold them all their life. One day, one day, they're gonna find they're gonna find one of these confidence-infusing adults to let them down. They're going to find it out. They're going to find out they're let down and their parents can't actually give them that confidence. Can't give them what they're looking for. And what about the parents in this situation? If your kid is, if their confidence in the world, if their righteousness, if their security, if their standing in the world, their reputation in the world is based on what you've said about them, what kind of pressure does that put on you? All of a sudden, you can't reveal. You can't reveal if you're wrong. Because if you're wrong, then your kid knows that they built their confidence on, on imperfect standing. They built it on sand. And so you have to become defensive. No, no, no. You don't understand. I did what the most righteous thing that could have possibly been done in that circumstance if you only knew it from my point of view. And you have to put on a show. You have to put on the happy face and tape it on because you can only ever be positive and, and happy and helpful because, it, because it's so tenuous. It's such a fragile edifice. And the kid never gets to real, know the real you. So building our confidence ourselves leads to evil. Having it infused from, from mere humans Leads to fragility. But Paul, Paul has both sides of those. Look at what he says here. He says, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. When Paul says flesh, he just means those human efforts as a, uh, that are against or outside of God. That I'm going to build my own reputation. If anybody has co- reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, I was... Uh, born a Hebrew of Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. Those are all those infused confidences. The things that he got by being born. His pedigree. And then he goes on to say that I was, um, as to the law of Pharisee, uh, as to obedience, faultless, as to zeal, I persecuted the church. I built my reputation. I worked hard at it. I did all the right things. But he gets to this point where he says, everything I considered gain towards earning my reputation, towards earning my standing, my okayness in this world, I now count as loss and as rubbish. You see, those of us who build our confidence, build our own confidence on our accomplishments, on our abilities, we treat people like refuse on the way to our goals. But Paul says, I treat my goals as refuse on my way to Jesus. He has found the wellspring that doesn't pollute the river. He has found the pure wellspring. And he says, that is the source of all my actions, is righteousness given by Jesus Christ. Righteousness is a big term in this passage. I think that we could say it's, It's kind of uh, similar to an all-access key card. You know these big buildings that have um, that you have to you know swipe your key card to get in the front door, and then to get on the elevator, and then depending on the floor you want to go to, you have to have the access, and you have to have the correct identification. And then, or maybe it's just in the Avengers and stuff like that. Maybe there's not actually buildings like that. 
but I imagine there are. And so you go, and, but to get in, the, get in certain rooms, you have to have the right identification. You have to have the right access. Righteousness is that standing. It's that identity that we have the access. We have access not only to the throne of grace, but we have access to, um, to this world where God has made us to uh, be little Christ. We have access to that confidence. So confidence must be given, not earned, but it must have an immovable giver to make it an unshakable confidence. So the dispute is over, do we have to obey the law now that we belong to Jesus in its entirety? The danger is that when we obey the law to build our own reputation and to build our own confidence, that we can have something to claim against God. That's the danger, and it produces evil. And now, the solution of inactivity. Paul says in this passage that I lost everything, which is an active statement, in order to be found in Christ, a passive statement. Paul is embracing this passive righteousness, this passive identification, this all-access key card that's been given to him in Christ. Righteousness for Paul. Why, is it, why do you get this access? This, you, uh, many of you have probably heard this and it's really stuck with me, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share it with you. Um, righteousness. And the way Paul's talking about it here is a record. Righteous, righteousness is a record of acts, of right acts. So let's pretend that this book is the book of my life. And it says Corby Shields on the front of it. And if you open it, every page is filled with all of the things that I ever did or thought or said. Everything. That last time that I shook somebody's hand and was thinking, I don't know your name and I can't wait to go eat lunch because I'm hungry. That's in here. And, and all the other things that I've ever done are written in here. This is not a book that I would want you to read. And in here is the book of Jesus Christ's life and death and resurrection. And on the cover it says Jesus. And inside are all the ways that he loved God and loved his neighbor perfectly at every moment all through his life. All of them are in here. Every one of them are written down. When he cried out, Father, forgive them, as he hung from the cross. All of it is written here. Righteousness from God that comes by faith is just this, that Jesus takes his book and removes all of this from it, takes it all out, every good work that he ever did, his whole total righteousness And he opens up mine and replaces my poor, sinful record with his own. So now when my cover says Corby Shields and you open it up, it says healed the lepers, cleansed the unclean, spoke to the lonely, taught, loved unconditionally. That is the righteousness that Paul is saying is so sweet and wonderful, that I would count every other gain as loss. I would count it not just as something to be thrown away, but as something that detracted from me gaining Christ. 
Because we can't have it both ways. You can't receive Christ's righteousness and build your own. So Paul says he throws away his own righteousness so that he can receive Christ. You know, it's, it is sweet because that righteousness that we have in Christ, that book will never change. Every time God looks at it, it says Corby on the outside, but he flips through it and it's all of what Jesus has accomplished. That never changes. But your, yours and mine, our accomplishments, our abilities that we put so much stock into can change in an instant. I hate to admit it, but Joel Bostrom would not always be that good looking. It's going to go away. Just the best looking man in the crowd. I just have to put him out. Now, They're going to go away, right? If, if your righteousness is in my looks, if my okayness with myself and in the world is in my looks, they're going to go away. If it's in your job or your intelligence, one accident could change that forever. Like that. You could have a brain injury and you can never be able to work again. Our accomplishments can be taken in an instant. Our abilities can go in the blink of an eye. In that movie Whiplash, you know, it finally derails him from his dream. It's not the end of the movie. Finally derails him from his dream of becoming an eminent jazz musician, a flat tire. That's it. It was a flat tire. And he missed the the concert that was going to submit him in this place that was going to be the track. And he flips out. And he loses touch with reality. It can go so fast. So Paul is saying, why would you stand and build on those foundations? Whether it's your parents' approval, or your accomplishments in school, or sports, or job, or your kids. You can't build on that. There's something so much more certain. Because if I fail or mess up in some way, then it's not the end. It's not the end of me. My life is hidden with Christ on high. He is my reputation. I have his record under my cover. God has nothing for me but pleasure and blessing, even in difficulties. So a couple things that this passage touches on will change in your life and in mine if we, if we hold this, if we receive by faith this, this inact of righteousness that God gives to us. The two things that this, sermon, this passage touches on, um, and many more could be said, are suffering and rejoicing. I'll make this brief. Suffering. When things don't go right in your life, you can react in two ways. If you're this kind of building my reputation, building my righteousness, building a record that means that all will be well with my life. When I was in, uh, in high school, I played on a football team, and, uh, and Coach Hayes was, Thomas Hayes was my, my position coach, by the way. And, um, and Marty Thorson, I think he was in it. He was, for a time, he was the tight end, right? Marty Thorson was in our, in our um, group, our position group. And Marty would go out for passes, and, if, he, and you know, if the ball hit him and he dropped it, hit him in the hands and he dropped it, he would stand there, hold his hands in front of his face, and scream at them. Ah! 
What's wrong with you? You have failed me for the last time. He was so angry. When he, was, when he encountered suffering and loss, he said, What's wrong with me? What did I do wrong? And that's what happens when we build our confidence. We're going to say, What did I do wrong? I thought I did everything right and it's still not working out. I still haven't been returned to health. I still don't have the kids I want to have. I still don't have the job I want to have. What am I doing wrong? I better find something else to repent of. I better find some other thing that I'm not obeying. Some other circumcision, some other obedience that I need to put on top of Christ so that I can get what I want out of life. Or you're going to say, what's wrong with you? Look at all that I've done. And you haven't held up your end of the bargain. You haven't done what you said you were going to do, God. But if our righteousness is in Christ, if our confidence is in him and it's unshakable, then we can encounter suffering in the way that Paul does here. And this is another one that deserves far more than one sermon on its own. Um, But he says that I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. Good idea, Paul. I like all those things. And participation in his suffering. That doesn't make any sense. I don't have to, we don't have time to go into it. Paul makes no sense from the world's standpoint to steer into suffering. Paul says, I want to suffer with and for Christ. To share in the fellowship of his suffering. So your sufferings all of a sudden are not proof that God failed you or that you failed to obey completely. They are, they are proof that God is working his way through the world, bringing about death and resurrection, and that's going to happen in your life too. They're proof that he's on the move. Lastly, rejoicing. The opening line of this, of this passage, Paul says, For, uh, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I think we often read that, just be happy. Be, be fine with life. But he says, rejoice in the Lord. Do you want to know how to find out where you're rejoicing? When something bad happens, what is your at least? When that person that you dislike at work gets the promotion instead of you, when do you what do you say at least? Well, at least I've got really good hair. At least I drive a Prius. It's a really good one. At least people like me here. When things go wrong, where do you turn to say at least? Well, at least I've at least I've got some friends. When you're when that when that friend gets married and you want to be so desperately, well at least I've still got my freedom. At least. Those at least, those are your fallbacks. Those are your safety nets. And Christ says there is no safety net but me. Rejoice in me, not in your hair, not in your accomplishments, not in your good looks, not in your pedigree. Rejoice in the Lord. That is what Paul is enumerating through the rest of these verses. Rejoice in the Lord. Receive the righteousness from God that is by faith. Amen.